It is a true privilege to call him a friend, and it is an honor to be with you again this morning. Pastor, it certainly is a privilege to stand in this pulpit. It's a task that I do not take lightly on any occasion. If you would, turn in your scriptures with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. That will be our, our text this morning, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And in this first epistle of Peter's, he writes this to the receivers of his letter. But ye are a chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be your good, they may see your good works, which they shall behold. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Back in 2002, I was a freshman in college, and this was just a year after uh, 9-11, so flying uh, back then was still... Um, uh, I mean, it still is a bit of a task if you have flown recently, but back then we were under really, really high uh, security. And uh, I was flying that December, it was my first year in college, and I was flying back home to Rhode Island where my parents live for Christmas break. And me and another girl that attended Trinity Baptist College together in my youth group, Megan, uh, we always tried to book our flights together so that we had someone to talk to on the way home. And um, it was really my first time ever flying by myself, and so it was just nice to have somebody else on the plane with me, help me figure out which plane I was getting on so I didn't end up in Alaska. And uh, so Megan and I were flying home for Christmas break, and we went through all of the rigors of security. And back then, your boarding pass had a special sign on it, at least some of them did. I, I don't think anyone really knew what particular sign it was, but if you got that sign on your boarding pass, it meant that you had to go through an additional check before you could board the plane. So at the gate, several passengers were pulled out of the line, and you went through an additional check before you had to get on. So we go through all of the security. We get on the plane. Five minutes till takeoff. Megan and I are all settled in, and the pilot comes over the speaker and says, folks, I'm really sorry, but one of our passengers has missed the additional security check. So we're trying to figure out who this is, and then we'll be off the ground here shortly. You can ask my wife. I admit it. I am not a patient person. And I leaned over to Megan and said, how do you miss a security check? Like, <laughs> I don't understand. It's not like they, they see the ticket. They pull you out of line. You go through the I don't understand. You miss a security check. We're waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm becoming more irritated. Get this plane off the ground. Pilot comes back on again and says, really sorry, folks. We haven't been able to figure out who it is. We're going to deboard the entire plane. Every, I am grumbling loudly at this point. We all get off the plane. We have to take all of our baggage off the plane. Everyone, all 200 and something of us, are standing in line now in the terminal. It's hot. We're grumpy. People are angry. Who is this idiot? 
I'm, I'm really mad now, and I'm saying to Megan, this is so stupid. This is so ridiculous. You really have to be an idiot to miss a security check. Pilot, now it's the gate agent, comes over, loudspeaker, and says, would Jacob Leparicki please come forward? In that instant, Megan turns on me, and she looks at me, and she goes, I knew it was you! Thank you, Megan. I leave the line. Megan stays there now with all the other grumbling passengers. I have my bags. I walk up to the front. Now, in front of all 200 and something people, they make me open all of my bags now on this table. They dump everything out on the table. And my aunt had made me some homemade chocolate chip cookies, my favorite cookies. And she wrapped them in tinfoil. So when they dumped out my bags, out rolls this giant ball of tinfoil. The security guard, who's not very happy at this point, looks me dead in the eyes and he says, what is that? And I sheepishly replied, cookies? You want one? He was not amused. He led me away. I was now seated by myself in the seating area at the gate with two security guards with machine guns on either side of me. Bomb-sniffing dogs were taken on the plane. This is hours, folks. Hours we've been sitting here now. And I can vividly remember the way I was looked at in that moment as I'm seated with two armed security guards, Megan is like, I don't know who he is. (laughs) We just got, I just met him on the plane. I have no idea who he is. And I remember a deep sense of a loss of my identity. I was in an instant cut off from the rest of society, from the rest of the passengers on the flight, from my friend who turned on me (laughs) and traveling companion. In a a way, I had really even lost my identity as an American. I did not feel American in that moment. I was being identified with a very, very bad group of people, and I was being identified with a devastating and dangerous ideology, and I was being accused of all these things simply because I had missed a security check. And I perhaps looked like someone who might do these things. And I have a feeling that this is how the recipients of Peter's first epistle must have felt. Very disillusioned. In fact, Peter gives us some context in the very first verse of 1 Peter 1. He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That word, strangers, that he uses there is actually the word pyrrhikoi, which denotes a people who are resident Aliens. They're a displaced community. So 
they're, they're grounded here. More than likely, the term indicates that they owned land. So they've been here for a little bit of time, but they're peasant people, and this is not their home country. They've been scattered abroad. So they don't really have any identity in this place. And Peter writes this epistle to this displaced and alienated community in an effort to help them find their identity as the people of God and to discover their mission and their purpose. More than likely, they are experiencing some type of persecution. Look at verse number 6. In chapter 1, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Scholars agree that more than likely, the persecution that these people are suffering is not physical, but rather it's social. They're being ostracized and looked down upon because of their status in this particular society. In fact, some of the language that's used here is actually used of the Israelites in other places right before the Exodus. As they're about to leave this bondage of 400 years of slavery in Egypt and be called out as the people of God and enter into the promised land, they're kind of in this state in between. They're about to be rescued, but they're not really rescued and they're trying to figure out, where do we fit here? Who, who are we? We're not really yet the people of God, but we know we're about to be saved. And there's this, this tension of, what is our identity? What is the purpose? What is the mission? Probably can be said of these same people here in this context. There's two things that Peter's recipients have going against them. First of all, they're immigrants. They're in a strange land. They have no national or communal identity. They're displaced. They don't really have a sense of belonging. And second, and perhaps worse in this particular time period, they're Christians. So not only are they immigrants, but now they're identifying with this dangerous new sect, this dangerous ideology. Whether they were Jew or whether they were Gentile, this title of Christian alienates them even further from their surrounding communities. It cuts them off politically and socially from families, from friends, from neighbors, There is a deep sense in this community of the loss of their identity. And it's to this group of desperate and displaced refugees that Peter writes with a distinct purpose to remind them who they are and whose they are. Because in that recapturing of of their identity, they will rediscover their purpose and their mission. He opens chapter 2 by reminding the community who it is that their faith is built upon. He, he claims in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that it is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Clearly, this group has had a roundabout radical change in their life. He's referencing their past life. Something has been different now about this group. And he opens chapter 2 by remembering why their lives are different. They're no longer in this former life of ignorance. They're no longer chasing vain passions. But rather, their hope now is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter refers to him in chapter 2 as the chief cornerstone. He is the defining person upon which their new faith is built. 
However, in those first few verses of chapter 2, Peter also points out in verse number 7, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So Peter's making a contrast here. You believe in Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, but there are still those who do not believe in, in fact, they find Christ to be a stumbling block. And this is fracturing this community. They hold to this new way of thinking that has radically changed their lives, and it's making them stand out in ways that's causing persecution for them. You can imagine how they're feeling. We're strangers here in this land. We're being looked down upon because of our status in society. We're being looked down upon because we're immigrants. We're being looked down upon because we believe in this person, Jesus Christ, and it's causing us to behave in different ways. And Peter undertakes the process of giving them a new identity, and it all hinges on one conjunction in verse 9. In a single word, Peter is about to change the whole direction for these people and the way they're thinking. He acknowledges the difficulty that they're experiencing. He knows that those around them despise this new faith. They're mocking them for following Christ. And in verse number 9, he starts by saying, but. All of that doesn't matter. Because I'm about to write you a new identity. In verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen generation. With one word, Peter prepares to redefine the way these displaced and marginalized Christians view themselves. Yes, you're being mocked. Yes, you're being persecuted. Yes, you have no country, no family, no community, no meaningful identity. But you are a chosen generation. The term that he uses there, genos, carries the idea of an ethnic group that shares both ancestry and custom. This community would not have had any kind of common ancestry or customs. They're coming from all over. They're scattered. They've lost all, everything that's meaningful to them as an identity marker. And yet, Peter writes, you've been chosen by God. And in that moment, they remember that they are now rooted in a new family. They have been adopted into the family of God, and their customs have actually become unique to those of the Christian faith. In Galatians 3, Paul writes to the Gentiles saying this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Here Paul advances the idea of a spiritual family in contrast to a physical family. This is a family that shares a heritage of faith rather than simply a bloodline. This is important for these people. You're a chosen generation. It doesn't matter that you don't have any connection with neighbors or people or family. You've been birthed into a new generation. You've been birthed into the family of God. You've been adopted by God himself. Throughout the New Testament, we see that being physical descendants of Abraham, although it's very culturally important to be Jewish and to be Israelite, and there are distinct promises made to those people, it's very clear that that is not enough. 
to inherit the kingdom of God. Just being Jewish isn't enough. Instead, salvation is rooted in faith. In Matthew 3, 9, John the Baptist says, Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that one of these stones God can raise up for children of Abraham. Rather, your physical lineage is no longer important. Don't worry about being disconnected from that. It's your spiritual heritage that's important. Jesus says the exact same thing in John 8. As he's talking to some Israelites, he actually calls these Israelites who do not have faith in him. He says that they are children of their father, the devil. Well, they would have been descendants of Abraham. But he completely rewrites this story. No, 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 that's not enough. You can't just claim that because you're children of Abraham that you've been birthed into this family. No, 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 no. This is now through faith. Entrance into the kingdom is not based on your physical DNA, but on faith in the Son of God. However, Paul or Peter very quickly here is trying to bring these people back into uh, alignment as he writes that this community is not supposed to be a superior race, but rather a people comprised of all nations and tongues who are, who are united by the Spirit of Christ. Peter borrows this same language that he uses, this term genos, from Isaiah chapter 43. The people that he's writing to would have been very familiar with this Isaiah text. And they would have known exactly where this term would have appeared before. This would not have been foreign to them. They would have heard those words and gone, we've heard this our entire lives. We know that we're part of that family. And all of a sudden... Their geographical, cultural, social, religious dysphoria is obliterated. It doesn't matter anymore. They've recalled that they're a generation chosen by God. In that particular passage where that's used in Isaiah, the Lord, or Isaiah is speaking about the Lord's servant, the Messiah, and he's also talking about the people of Israel who were chosen by God. To some extent, Israel also was supposed to be Yahweh's servant. However, we know this. Israel abdicated abdicated its position and did not fulfill that promise by turning away from the Lord. And Isaiah writes to them that now, though, this this will be rectified through the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter is recalling this. Now through Christ and his work, united with Christ through his spirit, this people can once again be called back into their position as this chosen generation. And this comes, though, with a particular obligation, because look what he says next. Not only have you been birthed into the family of God, a chosen generation, but you're a royal priesthood. He uses another Old Testament reference here that these people would have been extremely familiar with. He's quoting Exodus chapter 19, verse number 6. Now, can you imagine, you're, you're these people who are feeling... Like you have no, no context, no place, no real identity, no belonging. And all of a sudden, you get this letter from Peter who reminds you that you've been birthed into this chosen family, that God has claimed you, and then he calls you a royal priesthood. There are two things in the ancient world that these people would have known very clearly that you could not attain if you hadn't been born into it. The first one is royalty. If you weren't born in the bloodline of royalty, you weren't going to become royal. And secondly, if you weren't born into the house of Levi, if you weren't a Levite, you weren't going to be a priest. They knew that. 
very clearly. Yet, all of a sudden, they are given the title a royal priesthood. Peter could not have given these people any higher status. They've been elevated from peasants and immigrants to royal priests with a stroke of a pen. That's encouraging. That is beautiful language. However, it's important for us to remember, and Peter will remind them of this momentarily, that this status was not meant to make the community proud or boastful. They weren't supposed to walk around now saying, I'm a royal priest. No, 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 no. Rather, instead, they're to have the mind of Christ. Philippians, Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. So, as they hear these words, royal priesthood, it's not meant to make them boastful or prideful, but rather to help them remember, we serve a royal priest. And he did not behave in arrogance. Rather, he humbled himself and became a servant of all. And that is what allowed God to exalt him. Because He was humble. He suffered persecution. That would be encouraging words to this community that's suffering persecution. You're suffering persecution. Jesus suffered persecution. He humbled himself to it, and because of it, God has exalted him. So be like your royal priest that you serve. Then they're called priests. This would have meant that they would have immediately flashed back to Old Testament priesthood. The main thing that the priests were charged with is the worship and reconciliation of the people to God. The priests were to guard the worship of Yahweh and through worship to reconcile a sinful people to God. In actuality, if you think about it, all of evangelism can be thought of as an act of worship. Think with me, if you will, for a second about the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve worshiping. They are in beautiful and perfect relationship with their creator. They walk with him daily in the cool of the garden. Nothing interrupts this worship. And then one day, the serpent says to Eve, have you thought about why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree? Because God knows That in the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to become like him. The one thing Adam and Eve didn't have, they weren't God. And the promise of becoming their own God was too much for them. And Eve thought, oh, that's why he doesn't want us to eat of the tree. He's afraid we're going to become gods. And she eats. And he eats, and in that moment, worship and relationship are severed. And man turns inward on himself, exalts himself 
as God and creator. And rather than worshiping the one who had created them, they begin to worship themselves. Think of all the sin that has entered into the world because we want to be God. So evangelism then is the quest to remind humanity, no, 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 you're not your own creator. You are not God. And to turn from worship of self back to worship of God. That's what evangelism is. We are, we are tasked with creating worshipers of the true God. And as you witness and testify, oh, we turn people from a life of sin, from a life of self-worship, back to acknowledging their creator, submitting themselves to his authority. So all of evangelism is an act of worship. And this is what Peter is tasking these people with. You're a royal priesthood. You are to guard the worship of God zealously in this task as priests. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul writes, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Our priestly role is to reconcile a lost and dying world to God through the person of Jesus Christ. As a royal priesthood, you have the ministry of reconciliation. And then he goes on, not just chosen generation, not just royal priesthood, but you are a holy nation. As Israel is formed into a nation through the Exodus and is invited into covenantal relationship with Yahweh, the church, through its deliverance from Egypt of this world, has entered into a covenantal relationship with God through the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. This new covenant has formed a new nation, a new people that should stand in opposition to its pagan and depraved ideology. This nation, this holy nation, was meant to live by different rules as a reflection of their creator king. Have you thought about this? There's only two ways that you could ever be like God. The first one is to be immortal. And the second one is to be holy. People can only be like God if they are conformed to the express image of God, the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. In fact, Peter writes this in chapter 1, verse number 15. He writes, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, he quotes Old Testament again, Be ye holy, for I am holy. You're a holy nation. You are to be a distinct people. Yes, you're chosen. Yes, you're royal. Yes, you're priests. Now act like it. That demands that you act in holiness. And then he calls them a people, a peculiar people. And then he calls them in verse number 10, a people which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter 
concludes his description of these people, and he actually builds his whole argument on three Old Testament texts. The first one is Exodus 19, where he calls them a royal priesthood and a holy nation. The, the other one is Isaiah 43:20, which he builds with a chosen generation. And then he quotes Hosea 2. Where he reminds, where in Hosea, the people are reminded that even though they had failed to keep the covenant, they had forsaken their calling. They had been banished into exile. But Yahweh would remember them. And he would be merciful to them because they are his people. And Peter is reminding these people here, you're a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. And once you weren't a people... But you are a people again because God in his mercy has remembered you. And he is reaching out to you. He will regather you. He will call you in from isolation. He will make you into a nation, make you into a family, make you into a people for his own possession. My goodness. How could you feel like you had lost your identity after that? So what does this mean for us today? What, how, do we, how do we encapsulate what has, was written thousands of years ago to this people, and how do we apply this to our lives? Well, we live in a society that's filled with competing narratives. A society that is trying to tell us how we should identify and who we should identify with. We live in a world that's trying to define who we are. You hear sayings like, live your truth. You do you. Success is defined by how much you have or your position or your status. We are inundated with commercials promising peace and contentment and happiness if we'll just buy one more thing or just go one more place. In an age of technology, TV, tablets, and streaming on nearly every device, these narratives are constantly in front of us. I'm raising three boys in this world. My goodness. It's everywhere. In a recent article entitled Television's Impact on American Society and Culture, I want you to listen to this. The author writes this. This is not a Christian author. This is a secular author who is writing about the impact of television in America. TV is a constant presence in most Americans' lives. With its fast-moving, visually interesting, highly entertaining style, it commands many people's attention for several hours each day. Studies have shown that television competes with other sources of human interaction, such as family, friends, church, and school. In helping young people develop values and form ideas about the world around them, it also influences viewers' attitudes and beliefs about themselves, as well as about people from other social, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. Between the 1940s and 2000s, commercial television had a profound and wide-ranging impact on American society and culture. It influenced the way that people think about such important social issues as race, gender, and class. TV programs and commercials have also been mentioned as major factors contributing to increased American materialism. Ideas and images guide our lives. They create the belief systems that control our individual and societal actions. Television communicates more ideas and images to more people in a single day than biblical King Solomon or English playwright William Shakespeare did in their entire lives. 
More people depend on the medium for, for news and entertainment from which they construct their worldview than on any other venue in the world. This is not a sermon about television. This is a sermon about recapturing our lost identity. Because the world wants to convince you that you have a particular identity and that you should be following a particular ideology. How do we combat this constant barrage of media attempting us to form us into its image rather than into the image of Christ? In a world of competing narratives, we are called to remember who we are and whose we are. We must remember our identity in Christ as the people of God. We do this through exactly what we are doing here this morning. The way we compete with those narratives is by assembling here in this place. As we gather together as the people of God, as we sing the songs that we sang this morning, as we hear preaching and sermons on a regular basis, as we partake in the sacred actions of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are reminded... Just as Israel of old, as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, leaving behind them a life of slavery in Egypt, we too have passed through the waters of baptism. That identity is gone. Paul says, you're dead. You died. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That identity is gone. It died in the waters of baptism, and I've been resurrected into newness of life. Not to wander in a wilderness, but to flourish in a promised land. There was a purpose to this renewed identity, and I end here. The purpose Peter writes to them in verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In verse number nine, he writes to them that they're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. They had been called to offer spiritual sacrifices. This was a life of service. In in chapter 2, verse uh, verse number 5, he writes, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Where else do we hear this term, spiritual sacrifices? Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your unbelievably ridiculous, no, your reasonable service. You've been called out of darkness. You are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Why? To sacrifice Yourself, a living sacrifice. This priesthood offers itself as sacrifices to God that it may testify of the goodness of God's deliverance and show forth 
his praises to a lost and dying world. Keep your life honest and holy before the Gentiles so that when they go to point the finger at you as evildoers, there's nothing to say. Instead, they have to say, these people are different. There's something about the way they live. They've kept their conversation honest amongst us. And when they see that, they will behold and they will glorify God in that day. By embracing their renewed communal identity, this community would be able to accomplish its mission and finally find its purpose. This too is our calling. This is our identity. This is our mission. To live as the people of God amongst the Gentiles. That they may see our good works. That they may turn from a life of wickedness and self-worship and turn once again to glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled that you have extended salvation to us. We're overwhelmed by your mercy. In a world of competing identities, you have given us the only identity that matters. We are a people called by your name. And I pray that through the power of your spirit, you will equip us to live that life to keep our conversation honest amongst our friends and our families and our neighbors, that they may see the way that we live and that they will glorify you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. May we live lives that bring honor and glory to his sacrifice. For it's in his name we pray. Hey, you're here this morning you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I tell you he loves you he sacrificed his own self so that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly pastor I'm not sure I'm saved I'm not sure if I'd die right now I'd go to heaven to be with God and I'm concerned about that would you pray for me just slip your hand up this morning and right back down I'll pray for you I'm not going to come to where you are. I want to embarrass you in any way. I just want to pray for you, my need. I'm not sure about my salvation, preacher. Remember me in your prayers. Is there one? What a privilege. What a privilege it is to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Are you a holy nation? Are you living like it? Are you acting like it? Godliness, holiness, righteousness, it does matter. Because not only in our own life, but in the lives of people around us. Be that chosen people. Be that royal priesthood that God has called us to be. With our head bowed, eyes closed, let's stand together. As the instruments continue to play this morning, maybe God spoke to your heart about a certain specific thing this morning. Can I tell you, if God spoke to your heart and he's dealing with you, then speak back. Respond. It's what we have an altar for. That's what we have a time uh, of uh, invitation for so that we can do business with God. If you need to do business with God this morning, take time and do that this morning.
Thank you, oh my Father. When's the last time you just thanked him for what he's done in your life? As he continues to do in your life, even through difficulties and hard times and persecution and all that goes on in your life. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. It is, listen, it is the will of God that you be a thankful Christian. If you need to come, there's time. This morning you come. Amen. Good to see you this morning. Good to be here in the house of the Lord. Great music, great message. Really appreciate that uh, this morning, them taking their time to be with us and be a blessing uh, to us. 